American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. History for jerks. History, history for jerks. Samantha, that's a hickey. Stranger came in and slit his throat. Is what oh, man. Terrible mess. I was covered in blood. Those, those people have boners and their boners. Those must be horrors. The smell of decomposition was obvious upon driving into the property. So that's probably not a pleasant smell. He couldn't even get, get in the into the bathroom. What did he, he do? He, he shot on the bed. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of American, American Timelines. Time I'm Amy. And I'm Joe. And this is the podcast that brings you all the crazy, nostalgic, interesting things from the past. Yeah, some crazy, nostalgic, interesting things, weird things that would have gone viral. What have you. Right. And tonight we're talking about 1965. Yep. We're in the summer of 1965. But before we delve into episode 89, I got a little, uh, just a little shout out, a little dedication, special dedication I want to do to a fan. Oh, One of our fans. Um, we, we got our first uh, two comments on the app CastBox. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got featured on CastBox as a comedy podcast, a featured one. I was listening to a featured one. So I think we got a couple new <laughs> listeners, a couple people trying it out. So I want to read the two comments I got from listener Brent Nelson. Okay. Um, in fact, I'm so excited about these comments that I've... Uh, I, well, I want, I'm just going to read them. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, Brent Nelson starts off with, um, he says, on November 15th, Brent Nelson reviewed us, and Brent Nelson's picture, his uh, picture of his profile is a just a dog. Okay. Uh, some sort of some sort of Rottweiler. <laughs> this is a picture of a Rottweiler. And Brent Nelson says, this would be about our podcast. He's reviewing American Timelines. He says, this would be really interesting if the guy would keep his mouth shut <laughs> and let the woman tell her story. Uh, he says... He's got a point. I like him. <laughs> he says, he is not funny and as <laughs> annoying as hell. <laughs> so I think I wrote that. So I, I liked it. I'm going to come clean. And then he... Uh, and then he makes a secondary comment, and he says, even the lady tells him to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like an idiot. I'm done listening to this asshole. <laughs> that's, that's Brent Nelson, y'all. Uh, and I, I love him. Oh, yeah, he's a great guy. Brent Nelson knows what he's talking about. So I, I'm going to see if we can, you know, he should review every podcast. And Brent Nelson is right. He's right. <laughs> But I've actually... Um, he hit the nail on the head. That's to, everything I've always thought <laughs> and never could say. Well, honey, I kn- honey, or should I say Brent Nelson, <laughs> uh, I've written a song. I've written a poem that I just want to read to Brent Nelson okay. uh, to thank him for his comments about American Timelines. Uh, Brent Nelson, here, this is for you. <clears throat> I'm just going to read it. Brent, I hear you calling, but I can't come home right now. Me and the boys are playing, and we just can't find the sound. Just a few more hours, and I'll be right home to you. I think I hear them calling. Oh, Brent, what can I do? Brent, what can I do? That's for Brent Nelson. What in the hell was that? It's a a song, a poem I wrote, I mean. No. Not a song by Kiss. 
Oh, that's Beth. Beth. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Prince, I hear you calling. Well, so. you know, there's no way you would have been able to sing it and have me recognize it at all. So. You know what? Fuck you and Brent. <laughs> hey, Brent Nelson, if you're listening, if you want to fight, bro, I'm right, I'm right here. <laughs> all right. All right. No, Brent Nelson's great. He's right. He's actually 100% right. Yeah, I am annoying as hell. So I'm going to try to just shut up and listen to you this time. All right. And go. Wait a minute. I'm first. Brent wants me to shut up, so I can't say anything. <laughs> Sorry, Brent. This is how you want the podcast. You really don't want me to can't be the star anything. of the show. Sorry, Brent. All right. I don't enjoy this game, so how uh, about... Oh, are you are you and Brent asking me to just go ahead and talk? Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Brent, for your permission to talk. Saturday, July 10th. <laughs> we're going to just jump right into Saturday, July 10th, okay. 1965, where we got a new number one song. Another thing I'm going to try to do on this podcast, this episode, I'm going to try to not play any music because really we can't, we're not supposed to. Mm-hmm. If we ever, people start listening uh, right away, they're going to say, you can't play yeah. all these songs, you idiots. You can't even play one second. I originally thought you could play like 12 seconds or eight seconds. And then I just gradually just stopped caring and putting a, a lot more seconds. Uh, Sometimes there's a lot of seconds. Well, at one time I, th- I read somewhere that I thought, I read somewhere that if you are using it for historical purposes or if you're talking over it, kind of like explaining the song, talking about it, you can use it. But I don't think that counts as free, free fair, use. fair use or whatever. So I guess you could argue it. But so we should try to see if we can get away with playing. Because I don't think anybody cares that we're playing the songs anyway. Okay. Especially if we know them. Um, anyway, so July 10th, 1965. It's a well-known song. The Rolling Stones. Take over the number one spot. I can't get no satisfaction. Oh yes, of course. Keith Richards. Keith Richards came up with the famous guitar riff for Satisfaction when he woke up from a deep sleep and sung the riff for three seconds into a tape recorder, only then to fall back to sleep again. Keith Richards Keith did Richards that. Did, yeah. So he sat up, sang that song, <laughs> and went and laid back down. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I bet, yeah. So uh, maybe actually that sounded so good what I just did. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll just do that instead of playing the song. No, I'll just go. Burn, burn for no, it. it's definitely not what we're going to do. We might, and then we're and then we're all ready to what you have. I think you have something oh, yeah. for us on July fourteenth, nineteen sixty-five. I do. There, I'm going to talk about the case of Alice Crimmins. Oh, did something on with Alice Crimmins? 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 That happened the same day that Adelaide Stevenson died. Yes. Oh, the same day that Our Private World was on, starring Eileen Fulton, Julianne Marie, and Robert Drivis. Our Private World. Yeah, uh, it's about young Lisa Miller Hughes had been through a failed marriage and she needed something new. So she left her ex-husband Bob and her son Tom behind and moved to Chicago. It sounds terrible. Her new life involved many new people whose attitudes and problems affected Lisa's life. It was only lasted one season. Yeah, that's uh, it's about right. It sounds stupid. About right. Yes, yeah, so uh, on July 14th, 1965. Oh, wait. July 14th, 1965, the same day that the Older Americans Act was signed into law by U.S. President Johnson? Yes. The Older Americans Act. First, the first federal initiative aimed at providing comprehensive services for older adults. It created the National Aging Network, uh, c- compromising the administration on aging on the federal level, state units on aging at the state level, and area agencies on aging at the local level. Okay, yes, that day. Places got more money based on how many old people they had. Okay. That day? That day at 9.44 a.m., Queens police got a call from Ed Crimmins. Uh Uh-oh. 
So minutes later, two cops arrive at the Regal Garden Apartments to ask questions and search for four-year-old Missy and five-year-old Eddie Crimmins. Oh, no. Missing five-year-old and four-year-old? Yes. Do we have to talk about children murders? So Regal Gardens was a large large residential complex. It had about 25 buildings. Mm, the Regal Gardens featuring and the Regal Beagle. It was mostly a working class neighborhood, but it was considered a pretty safe area. Okay. Um, to get to the Crimmins apartment building, the cops had to cross a wide grass-covered lot and were met at the front porch by Edmund Crimmins, even though he no longer lived there. Oh, but he came there to meet the cops. Yeah, he told police his children were missing. His wife, Alice, had found that they were gone when she woke up that morning. The children's bedroom window was next to the front step, and it was a crank window, and it was partly open with a screen laying on the ground with a hole in it. Oh, no. Beneath the window was a porter's cart, which was basically like a, a stroller with a basket in it, and people would use it to carry things. Hmm. It was something that people did a lot of the time. Everybody had those? Oh, like a baby buggy with a box in it or something. All right. So anyway, um, the Crimmins apartment was um, 1D. The apartment entrance was five feet inside the main entrance on the right side. Is it bad that I'm picturing the Three's Company apartments? No, that that goes that, that goes well with us. I think it's because you said Regal, and that made me think it's of Regal, Regal Beagle. Beagle. Yeah, I can see that. So um, the Edmund escorts the police inside where they meet Alice. And she was an attractive redhead, and she was wearing turquoise pants and this floral blouse and these platform heels. Mm. She didn't look like a woman who had woken up and found her children missing, basically. And she was all put together and yes. done up. Uh, yes. Oh, something's not right here. Edmund explains that he and Alice are separated, and he doesn't live there anymore. Mm. He came to the apartment after Alice had called him and asked him if he had the children, and he didn't, so he drove over to help her search for them. So police questioned Alice about the night before, and she says she put them to bed around 9 p.m. Right. And checked on them at midnight, then woke up to find them missing. She said she woke up at 8.30, walked the dog, and went to wake the children at 9. Uh-oh. Then she called Edmund and checked with the neighbors, but no one had seen the kids. Little kids like that, they get up way before 8.30. Yeah. When Edmund Probably. arrived, he called the police. In the children's room, the youth bed and the crib looked like they had been slept in. There was a dresser beneath the window about as tall as the windowsill. Yeah. And there was also a lamp on that on on it. And something that caught the police's attention was there was a hook and eye lock on the outside of the children's bedroom door. Yeah. Alice said that little Eddie would get up in the night and raid the refrigerator. And so to keep him from doing that, she put that hook and eye Locked lock them in their bedrooms. on the door. Yeah. And she said that she had locked the door that night before and in the morning it had still been locked Mm. the window to the children's room only opened 13 inches okay it was like you know it was that crank window and it would only it only opened 13 inches the lamp on the dresser was directly in front of the window okay and the um the lamp was undisturbed and it was yeah and and the window crank couldn't be reached without moving the lamp So when a detective picked up the lamp, there was a ring on the dresser of dust where the lamp had rested, and the rest of the dresser had a layer of dust. Hmm, so it hadn't been moved. Yeah, and the windowsill also had dust on it. Huh, so nobody went out the window or came in the window. Right. The front door had a deadbolt that couldn't be locked from the outside without a key. 
Okay. And detectives learned the parents were involved in a custody battle. Uh-oh. So they hoped one of the parents was simply hiding the kids from the other one. Okay. There's trouble. So an additional 10 officers were brought in to canvas the neighborhood and look for witnesses and search. Parents were ske- the parents were scheduled to go to court on July 22nd, which was a week away. Oh, July 22nd, 1965? Yes. The same day that Carol Burnett and Alan King were on Password? Yes. The same day that uh, Sean, Michael Sean Hickenbottom was born in Chandler, Arizona? Who is that? Sean Michaels, the heartbreak kid, oh, American professional wrestler. Okay, yes. That same day? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, at... Edmund had filed for custody to take the children away from Alice, and, and he was saying that she was negligent with the kids. And a murderer. This was before this. Oh. So yeah, de- but she was. he was like, she's probably going to murder them. So when the detectives were at her apartment, they find all these empty liquor bottles in the trash. Uh-oh. And Heavy drinking. They found, um, they when they opened the refrigerator, they found there was hardly any food in it. There wasn't any milk. There was just very little. Little known fact, kids don't need milk. All they need is Jack Daniels. All right. So anyway, they started to get this real bad image of Alice. And they also yeah. found under her bed a um, overnight bag that had lingerie and lipstick and a toothbrush Mm-mm. in it. And they found a like a little black book that had all these different Dudes, Dudes. Oh, now that'd be promiscuous if you're a mom. And and in the 60s, they found cards and letters from a male from a different male admirers, and included a 52 year old contractor named Tony Grace, oh, who was married a married man. Uh oh, and scandalous. So detectives take Alice into the bedroom for questioning about the day before. They want to know what what happened that whole day before all right and she says between 2 30 and 4 30 they had a picnic in the park which was six blocks away from the apartment on the way home and and on the way home she stopped at a deli and bought manicotti green beans and soda for dinner okay when she got home she called her lawyer michael lupina to discuss the custody hearing all righty she Seems said she normal. was worried about her former maid, Evelyn Atkins. Uh-oh. Evelyn had a story about a time when Alice abandoned the children to take a boat trip to the Bahamas with Tony Grace. Oh, no. She abandoned the children? Um, then Alice said she called Tony Grace at his office around 7 p.m., and he was in a meeting and said he would call her back. Then Alice took the children in the car to find the apartment where Edmund had recently moved. She was hoping to catch him with another woman to help with the custody case. Like, if she, you know, to get evidence against him because that will help with the custody. Gotcha. You know. Yeah, that'll help with stuff. Um, but it sounds like she doesn't want custody. So she drove around for more than an hour until it was almost dark and then gave up. Then she bought gas at about 9 p.m. Okay. But Where's the, the kids during all this? They're with her. Okay. But the two attendants said that it was more like 5 p.m. when she had shown up there. Not 9 p.m. Right. She said she got the children ready for bed by about 9.15 and moved, and she said she had moved a window screen from her room and to the kids' room because the kids' room screen had a hole in it. But mm-hmm. then she realized that the one from her room, had the dog had peed on it, so she put the one with the hole in it back in the window because the dog had peed on it. Yeah, that's what she said. The Isn't dog peed on the screen. So, anyway. It's too specific to be fake, I think. 
so but she just sat it in the sill she didn't bolt it in there okay and so um she then she called a bronx bar to talk to tony grace who hadn't called her back okay and um he was at a bronx bar yep and she had talked to him about her custody case for a few minutes Okay. then hung up then she got a call from another boyfriend named joseph rorick oh boy she had met him in january of 1964 when she worked as a cocktail waitress Ah. Joseph asked her out, but she declined, saying she didn't have a babysitter that night. I wonder if he met her at TGI Fridays. At midnight, she said she took Eddie to the bathroom, and she was sure she relatched the door afterwards. Yeah. Then, um, after that, she took the dogs for a walk again. Mm -hmm. Then she sat on the front stoop. She didn't walk them again. It's just, we're telling us again, right? No, she said she walked them again. She walked him twice? Yeah. At 8 in the morning and then again at what time? This is like midnight. Oh, she walked him at midnight? Yeah. And then walked him again at 8 in the morning? Yes. Huh, that's weird. So um, then she took a bath and went to bed between 3.30 and 4 a.m. Jeez, that's late. I know. So by noon, the search for the children became the biggest in New York history. There were over 100 oh, cops involved. Really? Yep. Sorry. Um, the building. Where are these kids? Every time you turn the page, it sounds like a Rachel Maddow show. Oh, well, that's kind of cool. So anyway, the building entrance had a deadbolt that had to be opened with a key, which I already kind of said. Yeah. The apartment door also had a chain lock, hmm. and Alice had chained the lock before she went to bed. And when she woke up, both both the locks were still engaged. Okay, so the kids could not have left. So it looks like the yeah they could not have been taken through they, the window or the front door. They must still be in that apartment somewhere. So this makes Alice the prime suspect. Or they're ghosts. Yeah, or Alice is the prime suspect. Maybe she, she ate them? And she also didn't seem upset enough. She was kind of calm. Yeah, she was all done up, right? She yeah. She had her makeup, got all dressed up nice. And as police searched the neighborhood, neighbors, some neighbors had said they had seen Eddie and Missy wandering the neighborhood on other mornings. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't unheard of i guess for them to just wander around Other, a neighbor girl told them she had seen the screen in place at 9 p.m that night Uh-oh. she and her sister were walking past and saw the screen and heard the kids saying their prayers oh, okay so they said their prayers so jesus should have saved them and another neighbor told police that crimin's dog brandy usually barked at the smallest thing and mm-hmm. nobody heard the dog barking that night yeah that dog, those kind of dogs yeah they bark at everything so that's not right so about 12.30 that day, Alice's first interview was completed. Mm-hmm. The police didn't think the children had been abducted. A report came in that a body of a little girl had been found in a lot about eight blocks from the apartment. Oh. So Alice was driven to the area to identify the body, which was laying in the weeds about four feet from the street. But it wouldn't be her kids because hers are boys. No, she's got a girl and a boy. Oh, whoops. I thought they were both boys. No. Uh, the, the, Not a good listener. The body was Missy. Oh, no. Was her daughter? Yep. A floral blue pajama top was knotted around her neck. Oh, no. And Alice's (sighs) reaction was weird. Is that the four-year-old or the five-year-old? That remember? The girl was older. Okay, the five-year-old. I think. Eddie and Missy. That's right. So she had made, she kind of made like a pained look on her face, but her voice was emotionless and flat, and she identified her daughter, and then she was taken back home. Hmm. But and she didn't cry. Hmm. But you can't always like people deal with grief if, so differently. I don't think you'd cry even if 
even if you did it yourself, you'd still right. probably cry. Or even maybe even more so because you want everybody to not know. I don't know. Maybe I not. mean, people deal with grief in different ways, too. I mean, if somebody might be in total shock, they yeah, wouldn't cry. shock is a different word. Or if they're mind-controlled by aliens. Or that. that. You're right. Yeah. So um, she, yeah. when she got home, she did show some anger when there was reporters in front of her apartment. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to question her. Well, the fake news media, bunch of assholes. But she seemed more upset about the police bothering her than about what happened to her daughter. That's weird. Yeah. Um, Fishy. It's already her. After finding Missy dead, detectives were becoming more suspicious of both Alice and Edmund Crimmins. Okay. After seeing what was in the fridge and cabinets, they began to believe that the hook-and-eye lock was really to prevent her children from bothering her and her gentleman callers. Yeah, because there's nothing in the fridge to eat. That's right. Bro. Now that there was a homicide, police searched Crimmins' apartment. Did you know that um, uh, homicide used to be pronounced homocide? In what? The, in the... 40s no yeah you're making that up. i was watching the movie grapes of wrath and they said yeah i went to jail for homicide really yeah <laughs> so maybe that's how you're supposed to say it homicide yeah okay that's pretty funny anyway yeah. um so homicide police yeah. searched their apartment the medical examiner went to where missy's body was found okay and the pajama top around her neck covered her face. Mm. She was in full rigor and was warm to the touch because she had been lying in the sun for several hours. Mm, gross. A nine-year-old boy had spotted her body about... Full rigor? Is that what they say? You yeah. say rigor mortis? Yeah. Just, you say just rigor? That's what the people who know say? Yeah. It's, that sounds it's a little to sound. too, like, uh, too... Clinical? Yeah, no, it just sounds like you're... Trying to be cool? No, I don't know. No, just like you're too much of a... No a crime head. Okay. Full rigor. <laughs> like, I don't know. You you clearly, you're, you're reading and watching too much murder stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you could be right. It's like if I say, well, if I'm watching baseball and I say, oh, another ribby. Like a you novice, probably would say that. A novice baseball player wouldn't know what a ribby is, but we call them ribbies. But or see, a pick six. You probably do say that. And intercept it, run back for a touchdown. Oh, it's a pick six. Oh. So you probably do say that kind of shit. Rigor. Full rigor. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, I mean, it's I have a full on rager right now talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. You're such a jerk. Uh, I'm not a jerk. I'm a great. Ask Brent Nelson. Oh, you're right. Brent Nelson said him. <laughs> He's done listening to he this. Didn't, that's asshole. the only thing he didn't say was you're a jerk. No, he said I was an asshole. I know. You didn't, he didn't call you a jerk. That's the only thing he didn't call you. He called me an asshole. <laughs> I'm done listening to this asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Guy won't shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so. Um, a nine-year-old boy had spotted the body about 1 p.m. as he was walking home from the library. Oh, and he thought it was a... Poor kid. That kid's life is ruined. Well, he thought it was a doll. So he went home and told his mom all about this doll he saw. And his mom had been listening to the news. And she was like, holy oh, shit. Oh, she's smart enough to put two and two together. So she went out there, made him show her, and freaked out when she saw it and, and went and got the cops. Gross. Um. So the medical examiner saw no injuries on Missy at first. There were okay. no cuts or bruises, but her body was swarmed by fly with swarmed with flies by this time. And, but this helps establish the time of death. Okay. Because flies only lay eggs on dead organisms after the sun comes up. Isn't that weird? Really? Yeah. 
Um, Gross. After taking Why her- do I know that? Why do we know <laughs> that now? After taking her to the morgue, the medical examiner saw several small abrasions on her neck and the back of her legs, which were there before she had died. Okay. It was initially determined that she had died between 6 and 12 hours before her body had been found. Mm -hmm. The chief medical examiner found that her stomach was full, so she had died about two hours after her meal. Mm. But Alice said they ate at 7.30, and she had checked on them at midnight. Now the primary focus for police was finding Eddie. Okay, yeah, I got figured it out. Edmund was interrogated at about 5 p.m., and he was an aircraft mechanic who worked the 4 to 12 shift, but January 13th had been his day off, and he had played golf at around 7 a.m. Then he went to um, the clubhouse and watched sports on TV. That must be nice for his day off to just golf and yeah. watch sports while the wife is shackled with these kids. He miserable. Left he left at about 2 p.m. and drove by Joe Rorick's house because he knew about the affair that they were having. Oh, I was going to check on Joe Rorick. Joe, Joe was a wealthy home improvement contractor on Long Island. Who's just diddling whoever he wants. Edmund openly admitted that he hated him and thought he was responsible for Joe and Alice break for, David, for Edmund and Edmund Alice and breaking Alice. up. After that, Edmund said he drove home, watched TV, and went out again at about 11. He bought a pizza and a soda and brought them home. It sounds like a nice relaxing night by yourself he without said, any responsibilities. He said he went out again before midnight, drove to a bar about a half mile from Alice's apartment where he had several gin and tonics. Yeah. He left before 3 a.m., drove past Alice's apartment, saw lights in the, on in the living room and the bedroom, uh-huh. and called her after he got home. Oh, boy. He At admitted, 3, yeah. He admitted he was checking up on her. Yeah. And talk, they talked about the maid and that whole situation. Yeah. She hung up on him, so it was not a pleasant call. Yeah, and then went back to bed. He he went to bed until 8.15 when he was woken up by Alice's call. Huh. So they searched for Eddie for five days. Oh, my god! Then on Monday, July 19th. Oh, you mean the same day that I've Got a Secret with Soupy Sales was on TV? And the same day, get this, that filming began on the second television pilot for Gene Roddenberry's proposed science fiction series, Star Trek. Oh. With only one member of the cast that's the same of the first pilot that was filmed. Sweet. And that, you know what cast member they brought back from the first pilot? What? Who? Spock. Oh, sure. Leonard Nimoy. He's the only one that was retained. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep, it's now featured Canadian actor William Shatner in the lead role. So that they did a whole other Star Trek pilot with everybody different, except for Spock. That's pretty. And that this, would be funny to see. Yeah, this is the day the second one was filmed. All right. So wow. yes, that same day. That same day, fifty-one-year-old Vernon Warnicky and his ten-year-old son Ralph saw a wet blanket partially covering a small decomposing body. So think about this: they're seeing this blanket as William Shatner is making. TV gold. That's right. This was about one mile from Crimin's apartment along a wooden embankment near the expressway. Okay. And the smell was overwhelming. They knew right away what it was. Disgusting. Dead body. Eddie's body was too decomposed to identify, but his clothes and blanket matched, and his fingerprints matched. Um, The only fingerprints found in the apartment when they searched that were from Edmund, Alice, or Eddie. There was there was one unidentified print on the children's window pane. Yeah, it was kind of a partial print though. Was it a mushroom stamp? No, I don't believe so. Okay. Um, Alice was under the most scrutiny of the two of them because yeah. she was because she's such a the loose one who cannon. Lived there, um, 
and there would be no reason for an abduction for ransom because they didn't yeah. have money. They were, yeah. um, so they, um, did question any known sex offenders in the area mm -hmm. and asked where they were and went, what they were doing that night. And they all, all their alibis checked out though. Okay. Over the next few days, detectives were learning a lot about the Crimmins relationship. Okay. Alice and Edmund had known each other for about five years before they were married mm -hmm. in November of 1958. Then mm -hmm. Eddie was born in October of 1959, and Missy was born in October of 1960. Mm. They were happy until late 1963 when Alice decided, um, basically, that it was awesome to do it with other people. She okay. Got, <laughs> That's just... She got like this sexual awakening or something. Really? That, yeah. And so we were banging dudes. Yeah. Something. That's not something that usually happens. You don't hear about that. Happening. Not often, yeah. yeah. So Edmund forgave her and tried to save the marriage, but it didn't work. And by February of 1964, he ended up leaving her. Hmm. And he lived close by her because he was obsessed with her, though. Yeah. Um, he even would sneak into the basement of her apartment to listen to her. Doing like, it with other doing dudes? Doing it with other dudes, yeah. That's gross. Um, he decided in February of 1965 that she was negligent to the children. And and that's when the maid had called him and told him about how they had left. Yeah, she had left terrible. Him. And so the Alice and Edmund began spying on each other, and to try to get evidence so that yeah. to try to get the win the custody case. And but Edmund had by far the most evidence because um, even Alice's mother was going to testify against her. Really. Mm hmm. And well, yeah, it sounds like she shouldn't. Yeah, she, I don't know why she would want custody. It's weird. Well, investigations continued for two years, and okay. the public started to become critical of the investigation. Um, the Alice was followed, and her phone was tapped by the police, mm -hmm. and, and everybody she knew was interviewed. Police thought she had had help getting rid of the bodies. Yeah, um, nothing was said on the phone. That in, when they tapped her, though, nothing was said that incriminated her. She never confessed to anybody or anything. Okay. Um, police were trying to drive a wedge too between Alice and Edmund. They're just so that they could turn them against each other. Yeah, so somebody will confess on the other one. So they would out her to him whenever she was seen with other dudes. They would tell Edmund mm -mm, and stuff. Piss him off. And um, wherever she worked, they would call. Like she would go under as an uh, under an alias. Really? To work because this was such a sensational case. And then the police would call the place she, that hired her and say, this was this is really the child murderer, oh Alice Crimmins. So she had, to, she had to change jobs a lot oh and gosh. stuff. I wonder what kind of work she did. She's like a cocktail waitress, I think. Cocktail waitress. So, um, so. She um, was working as a waitress in a cocktail. She started to develop a thick skin. Okay. But then when the like, trial came, mm -hmm. it could totally went away. She was real dramatic throughout the trial, wailing and screaming and all kinds of carrying on. Yeah, I mean, you got to be pretty nuts to have all this happen to you. So there was, a, if you did it there was a letter sent to the DA in November of 1966. Oh, November of 1966. Y yes, and <laughs> this was a person who was writing, and they said that they had witnessed that night see a man and a woman walking down the street in and, and the woman was carrying a bundle of blankets mm. and there was a little child walking along with them mm. and um she said that the guy hollered at the woman to hurry up and the woman said be quiet someone's going to hear us and that the man then heaved the bundle into the back of a car oh no 
and then they picked up the baby and they got it and they got in the back seat uh. so but the writer didn't sign their name whoever wrote this letter yeah so the police pulled rental records and compared the handwriting with the people that live in that building rental records of home or apartments the, like their their leases and yeah. stuff, so they could compare the handwriting and they found this woman um oh boy it matched sophie iramirsky who lived on the corner sophie iramirsky and her window overlooked every part of the street okay they went to visit her and she admitted writing it right oh away boy, she's like she i was it. worried you'd find me and she said she had did had actually recognized alice crimmins and little eddie she knew it was them yeah oh, no so she agreed to testify so police theorized that Alice strangled Missy, then called Tony Grace, who helped cover it up, oh, man. and then killed Eddie. And they had no other evidence, and they couldn't prove who the man was that Alice was with, that, that Mrs. Iramirsky saw. They um, limited the case to the murder of Missy, though, because with Eddie, it was tricky because you couldn't really prove that he uh, died by murder because yeah. he was so decomposed. Ugh. But, I mean, there's no other logical, like, to have him die within that. Maybe he died of old age. Seriously, there's there's no other really. I think that's a reasonable doubt. But anyway. Yeah, he wasn't that old. They, um, grand jury met in September of 1967, and Joe Rorick was told to testify. Wait, are you saying September 12th of 1967? Not yet. Oh. By 1967, Joe was in serious trouble in business and was deeply in debt. Uh-oh. And had legal trouble. And when he was he, the rich guy, too, huh? Yeah. When he was questioned, he said Alice told him she'd rather see her kids dead than be with Edmund. And wow. Mrs. Iramirsky also testified that when the man threw the bundle into the car, Alice had cried out, don't throw her. And the man said, does she know the difference? Oh, no. So the grand jury indicted Alice on first-degree murder on September 12th, 1967. Oh, you mean the same day that... CIA Director Richard Helms presented U.S. President Johnson with a classified report titled Implications of an Unfavorable Outcome in Vietnam, prepared by analysts in the Office of National Estimates? Yes. According to analysis, failure would not come as a result of a complete military and political collapse of the U.S. effort in Vietnam, but would evolve from a likely compromise solution that would result from a peace settlement. What does that even mean? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But also the same day that... Louis Sezakili was born. Who's that? Louis C.K. Um, he's a famous oh, uh, masturbator yes. in front of women. Yes, he is. That's and comedian. True. So, yes, um, on September 12th, Alice was arrested as she was getting into her car. Okay. Hold on. Let me get there. What kind of car was it? What make and, well, Just give me the make and model know. and year and vi just the... Uh, the VIN number. Will be and the fine. media went nuts at this point. Oh, yeah. And the Crazy. public was divided about her guilt. And because it was so tough to find a motive. Yeah. Like, detectives theorized that Missy may have woken up and interrupted Allison, some lover. Oh, no. And then Alice got mad. Which, they're looking at all of this stuff and yeah. acting like she's a big slut. And that's yeah, their first. because that's what they do. Because to me, women that, does, aren't supposed that doesn't make like that. any sense. Um, another possible motive was to keep Edmund from getting custody. So the trial began on November of 1968, and it was real sensationalized. There was lots of testimony about all of her sexual exploits, and she had uh, all these outbursts in the courtroom. Yeah. Joe Rorick testified that she admitted to killing Missy during that testimony. Alice, oh, he, she admitted to yeah. it to him? Oh, he That's said what he that? says. Yeah. 
And during that testimony, Alice jumps up and screams, how could you do this? That isn't true. And then Mrs. Yermuski, though, was the dramatic witness. Right. She told her story, pointing at Alice and identifying her when they said, you know, do you see that person in the courtroom? Blah, blah, blah. Um, Edmund was also called to testify, and he still defended Alice. Huh. The evidence was laid out showing there was no way someone could have come into the apartment and abducted the children, and also the dog didn't bark, and then the maid also testified. You would think the dog would still bark when the baby died, no matter who killed her. You would think. You know? Um, Unless it was like an accident. The only thing was it was an accident. They're trying to cover it up, like the JonBenet Ramsey theory. Oh, maybe, yeah. The medical examiner testified about the time of death. Um, the defense had witnesses testify that Alice was a good mom, and Alice testified, which opened her up to all her private yeah, life. Right. And she would tremble and cry when her children were brought up, and she changed her story about whether she latched the hook and I latched. She she started thinking maybe she didn't lock Well, it. I bet she can't remember. I mean, yeah. with, you go through, you play it over in your head so many times, and then you just can't remember anymore, probably. And she denied that she confessed to killing Missy to Joe Rorick. Joe Rorick's a fucking liar. Um, the jury came back with guilty verdict for first-degree manslaughter, and Alice passed out. She was transferred to prison after being hospitalized for a week. A woman's prison? Yes. I'm yes. picturing Orange is the New Black. She was sentenced to 5 to 20 years. Oh. So then this... That's it for murdering two children? This lawyer, Herbert Lyon, comes in and takes her case. He's a real high-powered defense attorney. Herbert Lyon. He, he thinks around. she's innocent. So he's trying to get her out. So he gets her out on bail with a certificate of reasonable doubt that was granted. Oh, I didn't know that was such a certificate. Yes. Yeah. So after 24 days in prison, Alice was free again. Um, The appeal was 16 months later, and her conviction was reversed. The three judges, considering her appeal, said that the fact that three jurors visited the scene without attorney's knowledge, that was prejudicial to the Alice's rights. Huh. And so, also they said that Mrs. Iramirsky wasn't Technic- a credible witness. They're finding some technicalities. Yes. So she had a second trial in March of 1971. Did they is- say Mrs. Iramirsky was just like cross-eyed and going, <laughs> Yeah, they, they brought up her medical history and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so in 1971, she had her second trial. This was six years after the deaths. Oh, boy. And this time she would be indicted for both deaths first degree murder of eddie and first degree manslaughter of missy okay um back in 1967 the da had heard about a prisoner that was bragging that he knew the real story really he said he was friends with tony grace and alice and he knew what had happened oh man prisoners always brag but it wasn't taken seriously until january of 1968 oh then the prisoner told the da that he knew who drove the car that night and a detective met Joseph Rorick for drinks. Uh-oh. And he said he was sorry he blew the whistle on Alice. He reminisced about the children and wondered mm. why Alice would kill them. He said Alice told him she had help killing Eddie and mentioned a name and showed a picture of this guy named Vincent Colabella. Huh. Um, that sounds like a stand-up guy. I don't think he would do it. And this was a guy that the police already kind of had heard of. Vincent Colabella? She, he was a like, mafia guy. Uh oh. And so Mafia's um, not good. <laughs> in they they tracked Calabella down, but he refused to talk, so it was kind of a dead end anyway. All right. So the grand jury indicted Alice in July nineteen seventy, 
and she surrendered and pleaded not guilty, and the trial began March 15, 1971. Oh, March 15, 1971, the same day that Nikolai M. Klaxvig was born in Copenhagen, a renowned Danish painter of the late 18th century. Yes. And one of the early neoclassicists. Also, the same day that Chuck Connors and Tim Conway and Phyllis Diller all on Laugh-In. Yeah, that was a good show. Fernando Lamas was on there, too. Fernando Lamas? Fernando Uri Lamas? Ricardo Mantovan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mucho, mas mas macho. Yeah. Mas macho. Uh, George Raft was on that episode. Herschel Bernardi. All right. An upstairs neighbor testified this time on yeah. the second trial that on the a morning... More, a more sane upstairs neighbor? Yeah. Okay. On the morning of July 14th, she saw Alice on the street carrying a bundle mm-hmm. and that... This was on the morning. Yeah. And that Alice didn't say anything at all to her about her children being missing. Okay. Which is weird. Because yeah, why, if, she, if she's looking out there looking for her children, you would think she'd ask anybody walking by. But is that the morning before they were disappeared? No, this is the, the morning, morning after. after. Yeah. Huh. So the milkman also testified that he had delivered milk at 2.30 a.m. and didn't hear the dog bark like she usually did. Oh, the dog's dead. Detectives testified no fingerprints had been found, or not really. No footprints or scuff marks were found. Mrs. Iramirsky again testified. Oh, crazy lady again. A microchemist from medical examiner's office testified about hairs found on Missy. They were dog hairs. For Hmm. some reason, that's weird. And food found in Missy's stomach was, you know, how that whole thing related to her time of death and all that. Yeah. Uh, there was no real way to prove Eddie was murdered because of the decomposition. I already said that. Yeah. Joseph Rorick testified that Alice confessed to him, and then another neighbor corroborated Mrs. Zeromirsky's testimony. Yeah. Alice and her attorney appealed to the public. Alice said, anybody out there that late at, that late at night knew anything at all, could they come forward? And there was this guy, travel agency manager, who said he was out with his family, dog and child, in a blanket. Like, he thought maybe he was who people saw. Oh, he was out there. He became a witness for the defense. Okay. Uh, But during cross-examination, it was discovered he had not been parked in the same place that Mrs. Yeramuski said the car was. Oh, poor guy. So the second second trial, Alice does not testify, which is a good thing. Yeah, that's smart. Um, She was found guilty again. Oh, poor thing. So Maybe she did it. She was sentenced to life in prison. There's this book called Ordeal by Trial. Yeah. Um, the author, Joe Carposi Jr., Joe Carposi says Jr. that after he um, sent out the first edition of this book, Joe, Joe Rorick contacted him. Really? And met with him. Okay. And told him this whole story about how it was Tony Grace and there was a mafia connection hmm. and he had s- sent somebody. That makes sense. The kids were in a mafia well, he ring. said that she was connected with this politician sexually, and if her custody battle would have gone public, that um, that would have hurt this politician's um, reputation because really? it would the affair would have been brought out in public, huh. and so um, they had to kill the kids to prevent the custody battle. Yikes! Which That's doesn't awful. make any sense to me. If the kids are dead, there's no custody battle. Why, Just kill the kids. Why wouldn't they why kill, they kill her? him or her? Or everybody. Why would they kill the kids? Or Mrs. Iramuski. Iramuski. Don't kill her. Kill her. So anyway. No, she doesn't deserve um, to die. That's someone's grandmother. So Yeah, um, no, we shouldn't kill anybody. There continues to be holes in any theory of motive, though, with what 
that will show you. You know what? Politics will kill anybody. So two years. People want to be in office so bad. Yeah. Why does anybody want to be president? I know. That's a mystery. So two years after her conviction, the murder charge was overturned. Oh, it was? Yeah. The appellate court ruled that Eddie's death had not been proven beyond a reasonable doubt to have been a murder. Right. And. But what about Missy? Manslaughter conviction was also overturned because there was prosecutorial misconduct. But so a third trial was ordered for that. In February of 1975, the New York Court of Appeals reinstalled the manslaughter verdict. She was ordered to it again. Yes, she was ordered to finish her sentence and was paroled in 1977. Then moved to Key Largo with Tony Grace. Key Largo. Oh, Tony Grace went with her. Now he left his other lady. Uh, He did. And that's the end. She still stayed with Tony Grace after all this, huh? She married him while she was in prison. Tony Grace? Yes. So I got a lot of this from um, the parts of the book, Ordeal by Trial by George, George Carposi Jr. Okay. Um, True Crime Brewery did a good episode True on it. True Crime Brewery, Which I got a lot of this from. And then That's Crime to podcast. Remember um, had an episode, Go Ask Alice. Go Ask Alice, I think she'll know. So that is the story of Alice Crimmins. That's crazy. That was a long story. I know. Well, I know. It wasn't as long. It was it took us longer because we had to take breaks, but hopefully there was a lot of jumbly stuff in there. So yeah, hopefully you can I'll edit, edit it. Take some time, but you know, let's cleanse our palate with Saturday, July twenty fourth, nineteen sixty five, when uh, a pioneering African American runway model, Bethann Hardison, has a baby uh, with her fella. Donald McFadden, an antique and fine art collector. What are you talking about? And the baby's name is Kadeem Hardison, born in Bedford Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, New York. Who is Bed-Stuy. this now? Kadeem Hardison is born. Who the hell is that? You take that back right now. Everyone knows who Kadeem Hardison. He played. Everyone knows Kadeem Hardison. No. The. Unbelievable actor who played Dwayne Wayne in a different world. Oh, Jesus. All it's right. a different world. Keep going, please. From where you come from. And next week on American Timelines, Kadeem Hardison is our guest. <laughs> Ridiculous. Okay, Kadeem Hardison's not our guest yet. I'm trying to get him, though. Thursday, July 29, 1965. Uh, Vivian Lee's final film Oh, before her death. Mm-hmm. On July 8, 1967, comes out. A varied group of passengers boarding a ship bound for pre-World War II Germany represents a microcosm of early 1930s society directed by Stanley Kramer. What is it? Starring Vivian Lee, Simone Signoret, and Jose Ferrer. Ship of Fools. Okay. You know that? I've never seen that. Vivian Lee was subject to bouts of depression and alcoholism and was abrasive to fellow actors. Yeah, she had a whole, she had a lot of mental health, health issues. She did. There was a rocky start to her relationship with Lee Marvin. She's supposedly an infomaniac. Wherein she, I like that. Wherein she complained about his stale alcohol breath. Eventually, Boom. The, the two became highly unlikely good friends. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, Catherine Hepburn was the first choice for the aging Southern Belle. But because Spencer Tracy's bad health, she opted to continue to care for him, and she was replaced by Vivian Lee. 
Because Spencer Tracy was a laid down alcoholic. Like yeah. would when he was not on set, he would lay in the bathtub and drink alcohol that's until he I, passed out. That's what I do. That's true. It's a good place to do it because if you poop and pee yourself, it's just in the tub. And you can wash it down. The film cast includes four Oscar winners: Vivian Lee, Lee Marvin, Simone Sinclair, Jose Ferrer, and four Oscar nominees: Michael Dunn, Oscar Werner, Lilia Scala, and George Segal. And Steven Seagal. Yes. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, and that's the end of July. Should I try to go into August? You got a lot of August. One, two, three. I only have three things. Yeah, let's do August. it. Um, another movie came out August 3rd, 1965. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darling. Have you ever heard of that? No. Uh, Darling is a 1965 British drama film written by Frederick Raphael, directed by John Schlesinger, starring Julie Christie with Dirk Bogard and Lawrence Harvey. Darling was nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director. Christie won the Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance as Diana Scott. The mm-hmm. film also won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay and Best Costume Design. We didn't watch any of the trailers. Yeah, beautiful but amoral model Diana Scott sleeps her way to the top of the London fashion scene at the height of the swinging 60s. Can't imagine mm. that'd be that exciting, but maybe it would be. Shirley MacLaine was originally cast as Diana, but she dropped out. Oh, and then Saturday, August 7th, 1965, the Herman's Hermits take over the number one spot of the Billboard chart. I am Henry VIII, I am. Is yeah. It, is it really? It's that. Henry VIII, I am, I am. And so I'd like to amend my earlier statements on the Beatles and how it was amazing. They were so much different than everybody else because when they were on Ed Sullivan, everyone was screaming mm-hmm. because I watched a video from this time with the Herman's Hermits mm-hmm. playing this stupid shitty song. Yes. And women are screaming the same way and just crying and in love with these idiots. <laughs> so I guess just everyone in the 60s was just screaming and crying at everyone. Yeah. Although maybe it's not the same. Maybe it's just that age of girl because that happens on... It happens now. Yeah, it happens on TV shows. I wonder when it first started. Like, like did that happen in the 1800s? Can you imagine, like, girls in big giant dresses doing that? Screaming, just a high-pitched scream. I mean, it's the same thing as they have the high school musical theater awards. Yes. And they do the same thing. Kid, the girl, they everything, every single song, every single thing, they all just scream. But they're they don't look like they're screaming like they can't control themselves. They're just screaming because they're it's just like a reaction, I guess. Yeah. Well, people's adults still do it, but they just go, woo! Woo! Yeah, it turns into woo! Yeah. But, like, kids... And Americans do that worse than anybody Americans I've ever seen. the worst. Like, if you listen to an American crowd... Yeah. If you listen to a lot of podcasts that do um, tours that over woo! across the seas, then yeah. you listen to the American crowd, and it's so annoying yeah. compared to the other cr- European crowds. Yeah, I heard an interview with Sam Jay, who's a, a American comedian, and she, when she first went to London, she didn't get it. She was like... Why am I bombing? Why aren't they laughing at any of this? And they don't even laugh. Like at stand up, they don't laugh. They love the show. Yeah. And they clap at the end. Like, no, it was great. We're, no, we're listening. We yeah. We want to laugh. And she was like, oh, so you liked it? They were like, yeah, you were fabulous. And she was like, oh, I'm just used to getting laughs. You know, it's, yeah. It's like a weird American thing. It Americans is. are messed up. <laughs> anyway, uh, in 1965, this song became the fastest selling song in history to that point when, uh, when it was revived by Herman's Hermits. 
Uh, but this is originally that the original Henry VIII song is a 1910 British music hall song by Fred Murray. I'm sure and that's R. in the public Weston. domain. We could probably w- listen to that. I'm Henry VIII. I am not this version. Uh, it's not from 1910. It's not in the public domain yet. No, I mean not the 1965 version by Herman Herman's Hermits. No, that's what I'm saying. We could listen to the I 1910 probably could one if I could find it somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't recorded anywhere. Anyway, uh, yeah. And then Saturday, August 14th, 1965, Sonny and Cher knocked the Hermits off the number one spot. You know what the song? The beat goes on? Nope. Classic. More of a classic I song. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. Oh, yeah. And according to songfacts.com, Sonny Bono uh, was an up-and-coming record producer when he got Cher a job with Phil Spector as a session singer. They started dating and moving into their manager's house where Bono would write songs on a piano in the garage. He came up with I Got You, Babe, and wrote the lyrics on a piece of cardboard. Cher didn't like it at first. She recalled to Billboard magazine, Sonny woke me up in the middle of the night to come in where the piano was in the living room and sing it. And I didn't like it. And just said, okay, I'll sing it, and then I'm going to fuck back to bed, motherfucker. What kind, right, of, kind, what kind of accent was that? That's, a Cher, that's exactly how Cher sounds when she sings. No, that isn't. You believe Anyway, Sonny changed the key in the bridge to fit her voice, and then she loved it. Also, she had some more sleep. That's it. That's the end of August. Should I start September? No. A little preview for next episode. Uh, Charlie Sheen is going to be born. It's going to be the best. Now you don't have to talk about it next episode because you just did. Yes, I do. I have Charlie. No, because you just did. I have Charlie Sheen's entire biography to jump into oh, September Jesus Christ. Of nobody cares everybody cares about charlie sheen because you don't know gives a shit you don't know what charlie is sheen. you don't know what name he was named when he was born and you can find out i i couldn't care less the preview you ever wonder what charlie sheen's name was when he was born you can either google it real fast or wait till next episode which is more much more fun yes we'll be shirtless and you can be shirtless watching this and Shout out to Brent Nelson, y'all. The best looking podcasting reviewer in the world. (laughs) Podcasting reviewer. Yeah, Brent Nelson. Brent Nelson fucking knows podcasts. That's his title. That dude fucking knows. All right. Everybody, it's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Brent Nelson. Get out of here, Brent Nelson. (laughs) That should be our new one. Get out of here, Chuck Berry and Brent Nelson. (laughs) Take Brent Nelson with you. Welcome, Brett Nelson, to another episode of... Anyway, I love you, Amber Nelson. Samantha? That's a picture. When you were all alone, no watchtower, a kiss in the sky. Well, I was barely a glimmer in my young daddy's eyes. Said that we're so tired of hearing about the six days. One more time, I said we're so tired of hearing about American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com.